You are now tuned into the Wake the Flock Up Network. Welcome back to the show. You are now listening to Wake the Flock Up with Concept 714. And with me is my beautiful co-host. Rainbow Zoo. What's up, guys? Rainbow Zoo. And we're sitting here at our home, King's Corner, King's Graphic Designs. And uh, we got a packed house for a very special guest today. Uh, but before I introduce <laughs> before I introduce him, uh, I want to thank every single one of you guys that is here. Because every single one of you guys, literally, that is in this building, uh, you guys helped me get where I am today and the show to where it is and where it'll go. So thank you guys, all the artists, all the fans, everyone that's listening. Um, I couldn't have done it without you. So again, thank you very much. <laughs> well, we're sitting here um, with the writer of Straight Out of Compton, co-writer, right? Two writers to that. I guess you'd say original writer. Original writer. Yeah, I okay. conceive the project. So mm-hmm. Nice. That's it. Uh, th- as I'm going through all the research that I'm doing uh, to make sure that I'm prepped for today, I notice a pattern, and I want to know where that pattern emerged. Why? It seems to me you have a fascination or a very uh, strong interest in hip-hop culture, or at least in urban culture. Would you say that's fair to say? Yeah, I'll qualify that. Um I, uh, in 1986, I started a home entertainment label and we started, um, releasing, uh, independent black audience content in the home entertainment market. And at that time, if you, it, nobody here in the audience probably was even alive during that time, but, uh, uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, you had all this, you had this content that had come from the 70s, the so-called black exploitation era. So you had the Jamal Fanaka and, and Melvin Van Peoples and Rudy Ray Moore and Dolomite and all that stuff. So if you're going to start a black content label in 86, uh, you really had to go back to the, you know, content from the 70s. And I think Eddie Murphy was, you know, had had become a star with Beverly Hills Cop, but it was Denzel was just kind of starting with glory, and Wesley Snipes hadn't happened yet, and of course Will Smith, you know, had ten years. I think forget when Fresh Prince came out, but so I'm I'm sort of I've got this fledgling, you know, black home entertainment label, and I picked that area because. It was the uh, it was the opportunity. It was the thing that was missing, and you know nobody was going out, and you know a lot of this content was black owned, and you could go in and uh, uh, acquire it. And I, we did individual deals with a lot of these a lot of these guys. It was content not controlled by the major studios. Anyway, long story. I won't get into that too much, but it was it was the hip hop music movement 
that change the game for opportunities for uh, um, black entertainers. And I saw it directly because I was selling black content. So when NWA hit, you know, like, God, you know, this is, and then you start seeing the perception of people at what was then mostly bricks and mortar retail, the perception of black content changing where you had this bias. I mean, you had all kinds of bias about black content because it, there just wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of it. B there was this, you know, all this misguided kind of racist stuff that was going on at that era. So my movement and my getting to know the hip-hop area really was based out of a certain business necessity. It start, I had to come and I had to understand it because it was affecting the area that I was in. But why get in that business to begin with? Well, as I say, it's where the opportunity was. Right. There was a lane I mean, that hadn't a, been established. If you're a guy right? starting a company with 17 grand, it's not like you're going to go and get into business with the studios right away. I, I understand that, but why and, follow that? Things. Why be? Why start that company to begin with? Was there? Was there? Did you see that? That was just the way you you were going oh, yeah. to express yourself. Oh yeah. Well, I know. I, I, I was a I was a producer that got screwed in a distribution deal, and so I was a guy that had one title that I produced. It was Jay Leno's first live concert tape done in 1984. And a bunch of deals got blocked. And I said, well, I'm going to have to sell it myself. So I became a distributor to sell the one title that I had. And that forced me to sort of examine the whole home entertainment business. And I became a wholesaler. I mean, not unlike the way, you know, Ruthless Records started uh, with you know, easy, er, Lonzo Williams, you know, initially doing these mixtapes that he was wholesaling at the swap meets before he, you know, put together world-class wrecking crew. Um, wholesale distribution, a lot of times seeds uh, proprietary content. So um, that's the way I got in. And I've, you know, I started wholesaling all these old movies from the '70s, the black exploitation movies, and that and that was the easiest thing to sell of all the things that I was going and accessing at the time. And so that moved into a licensing initiative to go and get the things that hadn't been out before. So it's all it may it may seem strange, mm -hmm. but it seemed very logical to me at the time because I mean, what were the other opportunities? Right. The other big one was was Latin Hispanic, and uh, you know I later got into that because I got into business with Televisa in Mexico, doing their home entertainment, uh, putting telenovelas out and um, in the marketplace. <clears throat> but the ethnic it 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 appeared to me at that place with somebody starting with very little money, that um, the ethnic niches were a good place to try to, you know, get a level of expertise. And that meant all this sort of, you know, segmented marketing because you had to find, you, you had to go and find the zip codes where the customers were. You had to find the stores where the customers were going into. And that that's really what seeded did Xenon you, Did you find that... At some point, once you put out the product, that because of the culture that it was based on or for, that it just eventually starts selling itself? 
Or what, did you have the same difficulty selling the other products? No, you had to have you had to have product that people wanted. And I mean, Rudy Ray Moore was a cult figure. You, I mean, we we put out. Uh, I mean, we sold like a million units of Dolomite. Wow. It was crazy. I mean, that was a movie made for $90,000 that played in a few theaters. And uh, um, Rudy's, I mean, you know, his fan base was was deep. Same with Jamal Fanaka, you know, and, and the penitentiary films. And, of course, Melvin Van Peoples and Sweet Sweetback's Badass mm-hmm. Song. I got into business with, with all these guys. I mean, that's <clears throat> the stuff sold because it was known. We would do what we needed to do to place it and 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 market it but the uh um building the you know the building a distribution company is really late incredibly labor intensive yes. you know you've got to set up with at the time with distributors all around the country you got to go in and you know the these distributors really care about the major studio releases and so if you're an independent you're in there huffing and puffing and pushing your your stuff and you're up against uh you know, a hundred million dollar, a Star Wars like movie, you know, they're going to look at you like, you know, where the hell did this guy come from? But, uh, you know, we believed in these niches. We, uh, we absolutely did. And this is what, this is what would lead me to do the welcome to death row yes. documentary. So while you were going for a, a niche that was both logical and therefore lucrative, what kind of creative seeds were you sowing? Like what was in development that was something that you could truly call yours? I mean, I understand the logic and the importance of, of setting up your investments, especially after having some failed um, business attempts to, to start something with growing. But what was what were you, what's the word? What was incubating at the time creatively? Well, I mean, you're looking at it you're looking at it and you're going, what's missing? Well, everything, everything. So the first thing I did was produce a definitive documentary on Martin Luther King, which got a, uh, um, which got uh, uh, an approval from the King Foundation. So we started producing content. That was our first doc. Second doc, uh, Mahalia Jackson, you know, the you know, considered the world's greatest gospel singer. Nothing, believe it or not, it's hard to believe, but in in 92, there had never been a definitive cradle-to-grave documentary on Martin Luther King. Pretty crazy. That is hard to believe. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there had been other things, and part of it was the King Foundation being kind of famously, you know, I mean, in that context, they were Phil Jones, who was the lawyer for... uh, um, the King Foundation was, he was suing CBS for using the speeches. And, you know, they said those speeches are copyrighted and, uh, and the networks were saying they're in the public domain. So there was all this, you know, antagonism between the broadcast, many of the broadcast companies and the King Foundation. And in the, in the face of this, we just, you know, uh, I did a doc on spec and they found out about it, and they came in guns a-blazing, and I said, what do you need? And we worked out a deal on the phone, and it became the first authorized doc on Martin Luther King. Um, Mahalia Jackson followed that. We did a documentary on Rudy Ray Moore because we were in business with him. So we'd done three docs before we uh, we did Death Row, which was a much more... 
uh, ambitious project. What, le- what led you to that? What led you to specifically to Death Row? I mean, not only does the Death Row story paint, you can't make a better movie if you wrote it. Like that whole, from beginning to end, right? And only knowing it from the aspect of a hip-hop insider, right? Not knowing the, the true in, inner details that you later got to learn. What initially said, this is a story. There's something here. Because it's this great made-in-America story. I mean, this is about America. This is about making it in America. And, you know, in this case, it's about, you know, um, highly talented African-Americans, you know, uh, looking to get their place at the table. And, uh, and what happens and how it happens and you know beginning with ruthless and uh he was once a thug easy and, you know how, you know how all easy. that it's it's look at ruthless records look at what look at what easy achieved from zero from a cold start jj fad gold um, Easy Does It, Platinum, on the heels of that, right next to that, straight out of Compton. Then no one can do it better by the, by the DOC. It's cr- it, it just this doesn't happen in the music business. You don't get that, bang, 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 bang level level of success from nothing. So I mean, this is what Suge Knight sees, and he sees that Dre is the you know is the doing all the production on 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 all these records and he's a bodyguard for the doc the doc would say no he was i was just hanging out with him but really suge's kind of mo at that time was i'll hang around and if there's a problem i'll defuse it and then give me a, a few hundred bucks which was i don't think he was formally you know on contract with anybody but that was kind of how he worked at the time but uh, he also saw that there were issues uh, between uh, uh, the talent and and Easy and Jerry, and you know this ruthless starts as this thing in the neighborhood where Easy is like. Um, I last night I had dinner with Arabian Prince, who was one of the original. Uh, he's on the cover of of uh, um, the Straight Outta Compton album, and kind of you know ended up. Everybody says dropped out of the picture, but actually he was on the whole tour with NWA, and he was. But he was the first guy to leave the the label. He produced all the the JJ Fad album, so he was the first guy in line to get money, and he got he got paid. He was the first guy that went to Heller and said, "I've, um, you know, I want my money." But he also said, "If it's going to be this rough, trying to collect my money, I'm I'm out." But he was he was there through this. Well, this is an aside, but he's uh, you know NWA is going to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now. So you know there's an issue about Arabian Prince, uh, you know, being honored as part of that part of that group. But the the point is that starts as we're all buddies, we're all friends, we're all guys from the neighborhood, you know, right. and we're trying let's let's put together a record, let's do let's do all this, and then it becomes. Very, very successful. And then Easy knows that, you know, he knows what he can do and he knows what he can't do. And he brings in, you know, he sidles up to Heller. And Heller sets up, he puts the first album through uh, Atlantic Atco. 
and then the next two through priority records and then the th- you know the fourth through uh, uh, the DOC album through Atlantic sets up the publishing, helps set, you know, does the things that, that EZ doesn't know how to do. And EZ uh, and becomes a guy at 20, you know, he says, I'm a manager, realizes EZ wants to own the company and that this needs to be a black owned company. And uh, um, says, I'm a manager. I take 20%, 20% off the top. Now that sounds good to EZ at the time. They were so successful, and the artists see so much money going to Heller that they um, uh, that they rebel. But that was the deal. I mean, but fair is fair. It, that was the deal that Easy agreed to. Right. So it wasn't anything that he wasn't entitled to, or it was agreed upon. But whatever they it just were seemed given unfair to everybody else who's looking at this and going, you know, Dre, for example, doing all the production work, you know, or a lot of the production work on. On the albums, and uh, you know, Cube when he left, it had been paid thirty-two grand. Yes, he said, "How the hell am I going to make it?" But he wasn't willing to. Very impatient guys, too. You know, they weren't willing to wait out the timetable in the record industry. You know, there there is a lag. You ship. You know, there are royalty accounting periods, and you know, believe me, I'm in the home entertainment been in the home entertainment business for three decades i know how long it takes for the walmarts of the world to pay and you know to get the money out of the out of the accounts and things um i don't know the particulars because i wasn't there but i do know that um if i was in jerry's shoes i probably would have advanced more money to those guys given the success that uh right. <laughs> you know but he he just you know but you ask yourself okay would a geff would geffen have done that Maybe would yeah. would Tommy Matola done that? You yeah. look at any other mogul, and these are this goes on in the music business all the time. You know what? At what point um, the advancement of money is the, is often the the determinant between somebody staying and going uh, when they're waiting on uh, full accounting. You, as the story goes on, and you're doing the research for um, Welcome to Death Row. What was there a surprise twist that you did not expect to run into, or did it pretty much lay out as in like, well, this makes that's about right when you're dealing with this type of we just we had no idea how dangerous it was. That's that's what we you know we we had no idea that we were going to be you know I was going to be fearing for my life you know every day for three years. You know, um, I don't. Uh, there's a point, you know, and I say this in the book, you know, you're so sick of the threats that you're like, man, just bring it the fuck on. You know, you you, you kind of go irrational because you're so, you know, um, it's the psychic thing of feeling like someone's going to hurt you is almost more terrifying than being hurt yourself, you know. We, I mean, we're all pretty well aware of the controversy that's surrounding the portrayal of the manager um, in in Straight Outta Compton. Do you feel like his points are valid? I, I don't know. I mean, I definitely felt like he was demonized in the movie a little bit, but I'm not completely familiar with the history. You seem to let be me just, very well Let me well just say this, it. okay? I spent a lot of time with Heller, and I'm the only writer that spent... A significant amount of time with him and Alan Winkus, who I pulled into the the project. So we, 
you know, Hiller generously uh, allocated a lot of time to us. Uh, he's not happy now. Um, and he's making some <laughs> allegations that, you know, in the suit, which I'm named in, aren't, you know, aren't correct. But uh, our original screenplay was about the relationship between Jerry and Easy. And I looked at it as uh, the road I was going down. And again, this is before, remember, it's show business, it's Hollywood, things change. And I'm the original, I'm the original guy. But the most compelling story to me was to take a Heller, who had been a, um, you know, a iconic guy, you know, a guy that brought Elton John and, uh, you know, uh, to America, did tours with Pink Floyd. I mean, he was just, you know, at 35, he's driving a Rolls Royce and he's the cock of the walk and, you know, he's managing people like John Fogarty and he had a big career interfacing with David Geffen and people like that. And um, at some point he just sort of lost his way. Uh, and I, I liken him, when we were writing it, I likened him to the... Uh, the Paul Newman character in, in The Verdict, if you've ever seen that movie, which was, you know, this, <laughs> you, the first time you see Newman in that movie, I mean, he's, he's at such a low point as a lawyer that he's like shaking down people at a funeral to try to get, uh, you know, and that Heller was crashed on his parents' couch and, you know, trying to find his way in the business because he'd lost his intent. He'd gone through a bad divorce. He'd had issues with alcohol. And so I saw it as this sort of great story about two people that need one another, you know, easy, who's this, uh, and who come together and build something. And then what happens? So that's the, you know, that's the road I went down. There was always the issue of Cube's anger towards Heller. There was always the issue of you know, Suge Knight coming to his office, grabbing the contracts. There was always the, you know, Solar Studios. There was always the, you know, the the issues surrounding the eventual destruction of Ruthless that was rooted in, in people's anger towards Heller, which I felt, um, and again, I wasn't there. I wasn't there, but it starts as this thing of we're, we're all buddies, and Easy's making these pronouncements. And at some point, it's Easy, who's also a ruthless Machiavellian character, uh, to a degree, seeing that Jerry's the play more than his buddies. And Cube didn't want to see that, and, and Dre didn't want to see that. But basically, it was Easy driving the bus, and Jerry, you know, taking a lot of the... And Black. <laughs> some of it, Yeah. Yeah, and it's and not to say that Heller was a particularly nice guy, because he may not have been. He's got an edge to him when I when I interviewed him, but he was a he was critical to the success of this whole thing. He put his own money in, uh, you know, on the on the tour. And I can't say too much because I'm again I'm being of course of course I'm but being I, uh, but I I'm admire, named in a hundred and ten million dollar lawsuit right now against the production but the uh you know it's it's my my process was to paint him um 
portray him somewhat more sympathetically than he was put in the you know in the in the film but look it's not my show you know you go in and you you know you're the you're the original writer you go in and also remember I'm writing for Tamika Wright because you know this thing is Jerry at one point when he stopped talking to me he goes this is never going to get fucking made is it and the re and I said <laughs> I just know I just said I don't know I don't know at that point but uh what I did know is that we had to write a screenplay that portrayed Easy E a certain way and gave him his props and made him the lead character. And because we were going to have to get the music rights from his widow, Tamika. So the big, you know, the, it felt like winning the Super Bowl when she read the draft and uh, said, I, and she called me at, it's the craziest thing she called me and I didn't recognize the number I picked up the number and she goes uh, this is Tamika Wright I don't know who you are but you captured easy so this must be God's will wow yeah I, I agree <laughs> that me, is a fucking moment let I me need tell to you. I need to ask something because um, having grown up knowing nothing but hip hop and, and kind of just that that was the guidance path for a lot of us here uh, growing up, you, you if you paid attention enough during those days of MTV when everything was, they didn't know what was going to affect them in the future and they didn't have, like, the publicists weren't as strong. Like, I believe, like, MTV News played a crucial part in, like, really displaying the way hip-hop artists acted and interacted with each other and with their audience. Dre was displayed in this movie in a way that, if as someone who has an idea of and was present during those times, that was not really the way it went down. And like, if you gather the points together, you could say, this is not really, you've seen Dre from interviews and stuff like that. I can, I don't, for, I almost factual that that did not happen. Like Dre was really painted in this super, superhero type way. I felt like right? he was romanticized too. Like strongly. And I was, and I'm, I'm sure Dre being Dre now, he was present there every day. And he had display. He had, he wanted to make sure the story was told in his favor because he's vastly the most successful, at least industry wise, out of all everyone present. Um, was that something you kept in mind? Was that something? Yeah, that you know, I always say you don't write "fuck the police" and be the patron saint of goodness, right? You know, <laughs> I mean, it just <laughs> these guys. These guys were. Uh, um, there were definitely issues in the in in the hood there and whether they were gangsters themselves uh, you know they they always say you know well they weren't gangsters well you know uh, they knew gangsters they had relatives that were gangsters easy was a drug dealer i bet uh, uh, arabian said last night easy was fearless easy was i mean that guy was crazy he would do anything you know he just He's just sometimes, you know, the, the, the scariest guys in South Central, these guys that are like five three, five four. You know, they have the barrel chest and they and you know, they people people uh uh I think underestimate them. Yeah. I mean like Rick James, who I know who was Tupac's uh uh best friend at the end of his life. I mean, this guy, whew, you know, 
Suge Knight sometimes, you know, he would always be around Suge Knight. Suge Knight would sometimes stand behind this guy, and he's like 5'5". Five, five. But, uh, um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're not going to grow up in that environment and, you know, not have issues. I mean, look, Dre had how many kids by the time he was 19? Uh, quite a few. And, I mean, he was... Uh, um, it's not the obligation of the movie studio to to engage in exactitude when it comes to factual that, stuff. That's and that's an issue. Pick, well, that's an issue with pick, me. You I, pick any movie, pick any movie, Beautiful Mind or whatever. Their job, if they're going to put up that kind of money, they're going to um, they're going to do what. Uh, is going to inspire the audience to love the movie. And if you don't like these guys, you know, if you don't love these guys, a lot of what works in that movie doesn't, you know, doesn't work. So that, I understand. That you, gotta, you have to sell tickets. I get that. Yeah. But here's the issue that I have, and I think a lot of people also have. This movie is a representative of a culture and like the initiatives and uh, a very strong, powerful force that, that propelled the culture to what it is now. So if I'm going in and I see it's the NWA, it's depicting, it's going to, this generation that grew up ahead of me has no idea of all the past stuff that happened. So this is going to be their perception of reality come towards thinking of Dre or Ice Cube. All they know them from is like Ride Along 2 and the guy that makes headphones. So us that grew up listening to them, us that grew up with that, with that standard, with that, hey, I, I walked in as someone who was embedded in hip-hop saying, I'm going to definitely fact-check this in my head. Mm -hmm. So as I'm sitting down, I'm like, no, 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 no. And I think, yes, you have to sell seats, but if you're going to portray it as this is their story, don't you kind of have to stick closer to the source material? I think it depends mm -hmm. on who you are, you know. I mean, as I say, my... Original draft tethered pretty damn close to the truth. Ah, okay. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, you're asking um, Hollywood to make a movie mm -hmm. about people that are paying Hollywood to make a movie about them. What do you think is going to be emphasized? Yeah, I mean, what you've got a unique scenario because you've got two of the characters in the film that are producers on the on the film. Uh, you're gonna, you know, yeah. so it's it's like. But but welcome to Death Row was it. not that, and I I kind of want to talk about that. A little bit more than the NWA movie, if I may. I, I having uh, gone no problem there. That that doc is the basis of what you know. I'm I'm working on the right. the movie right now. What are we going to get from the movie that we didn't that we're not gonna, that we didn't get in the book? I don't know. It's still writing itself, but I think the uh, I, I think the uh, and it's still unfolding. The story is still unfolding. Mm -hmm. You know this the. the the key character in the a key character, I would say the titular character in the in the death row story is this is this imprisoned former drug dealer, Mike Harris. Harris built an organization that distributed cocaine in California, Arizona, Texas, Michigan, Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, Missouri, Louisiana, Florida, and New York. Investigators say he dealt so much cocaine, major Colombian drug kingpins like Mario Villabona were obliged to deal directly with Harris. But like a mob godfather, Harris sought to legitimize his illicit fortune and gain Beverly Hills respectability. I was not a drug dealer. I was a person who decided to 
decided to sell drugs. But I also, at another point, decided that I didn't want to do that anymore. So I took those proceeds and invested in various real estate and businesses that turned out to be quite profitable. Mike Harris uh, had a wonderful background in entertainment. He, I think he was the first African-American ever to produce a, a Broadway show that was a smash, and it gave Denzel Washington his start. Checkmate was the name of the play. The play opened on Broadway. Many of us African-Americans have been on Broadway, on the screen, out front, singing and dancing. But very few of us have been there as producers. He's the most interesting guy in the whole equation. Mm -hmm. Because he'd, you know, he'd built a... Uh, uh, he was a guy that in the was known to be this notorious so-called drug kingpin, but he was actually a guy going in and out of the drug business and seeding legitimate businesses in South Central Los Angeles and employing a lot of uh, black people. He gets uh, nailed on it, what would become a trumped-up charge, uh, an attempted murder charge, which has been discredited, but he served 25 years for that, and, and a federal drug charge where he made the fateful choice of going in one last time on a deal, and uh, the feds got him. But uh, um, he put a million five into death row records when, you know, basically Suge Knight was there with Dre trying to hold all those artists, and he needed that money more than life itself to make the libel work. And... Uh, you know, Mike Harris is uh, um, the guy that was handling his appeal on the attempted murder charge, David Kenner, would later was introduced to Suge, became Suge Knight's right-hand man and the president of, of uh, Death Row Records and would eventually betray uh, Mike Harris. So, I mean, it's this amazing Shakespearean story and it's it's it goes very deep and it's more, it's actually more of a, to me, a more interesting story than the Straight Outta Compton story. Would this um, also be um, a motion straight, picture, or will you go documentary? Outta, no, it's a, stuff. Well, I've, I'm I'm doing a doc. Mm -hmm. I'm doing a doc right now, but it's to, it's basically to set up the, you know, the feature film. Mm. So, but the you know the what what Straight Outta Compton, and it's a you know it's a great movie. I like the movie a lot. You know, I did like you. I, you know, when I see. Uh, 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 Jerry Heller uh, chasing Easy E down the you know the hallway mm -hmm. and and Macola, I'm like, didn't fucking happen. But you know, it's no, yeah, you, <laughs> no. You, I mean, Easy yeah. Easy Easy hounded Lonzo Williams, hounded him and hounded him to get an introduction into to to Jerry Heller, who had set up and established a, a business at at Macola Records. So I mean, that's. Some of those things I had, you know, I had, I had, I had more trouble with that than the. The, the one thing I got the, super excited about, uh, and I hope Hollywood does it justice, right? Is I guess hip hop's Elvis, right? So when we're we're talking about Tupac, right? And are you gonna? How are you approaching that? Do you have an idea? Is that going to be just kind of engulfed in the story, or Tupac is a player in the story, but he's a, he's a supporting. He's a supporting character in, right. the, in the story. 
somebody's going to make the Tupac movie. I think they're. I think it's uh, Morgan Creek is in the middle of all that right now. The studio, and uh, and it's uh, who John Singleton I think is yeah. is attached to that. Nice. But uh, I'm I'm more interested in the whole Shakespearean thing that happened between Kenner, Mike Harris, and Suge Knight. I mean, Suge Knight decides to. Fuck Mike Harris? Wow. Wow. That's like the last guy on earth. Is this you know? a, gra so a grand a sort of... choice by Suge or was it, uh, you see, like a necessity? No, I think do? it's just the nature of the beast. Okay. It's just the nature of the beast with Mike Harris. You know, I go see him regularly in, at the uh, federal prison in Lompoc. And because uh, we're, you know, he's monitoring what I'm writing right now. Nice. Um, <laughs> that, that must be awesome for you. No, no, no. It's it's we've uh, <laughs> we've had a long relationship. We didn't speak for 14 years, and now we're back talking again. Right. And you know, um, since Compton came out, and uh, really since I started writing the book, which is good. But uh, we're the, we're leading down to uh, Welcome to Death Row. So as we're as as the as you're collecting this information and you're gathering, and like you said, it's writing itself, right? Is there is it is it playing the same way kind of that uh, straight out of Compton is playing? Like, is this information easy to gather? Is it well, this is an obvious step taken? Are there a lot of twists and turns in this particular series of events that led to death row and the extension of it? I don't know. You know, the more the interesting thing about this story is that you know. It's largely trapped in the minds of a lot of people. Um, you know, so a lot of people have one little piece of information that they can add to the, to the story. Well, I was there and I saw this kind of thing. Um, so as I, and this is, this is what happened when I was writing the Straight Outta Compton strip. The more I talk to people, the more things unfold and the more you hear. And then suddenly uh, you add that into, then it becomes draft 15 and then it becomes draft 18 and then it becomes 21, which is what we, we wrote 21 drafts. Um, so I'm, I'm seeing as I get further into the, you know, the death row project that, um, um, yeah, there are going to be things I don't that are not in the book mm -hmm. that um, um, that I I'm going to be hearing for the first time that I know I've got to put in. Um, but it's it's more of like um, it's this is really about the you know the depths of human greed. It really you know I don't know if you ever watch American Greed that show on CNBC. Mm -hmm. <laughs> This is like an epic American greed story because, I mean, how do you, how do you take money from a guy, you know, when you are absolutely going to go down the drink and cut a deal with Interscope and then try to move the guy? <laughs> I mean, it's just, and then your, your lawyer, you know, the guy that's handling you know, you're the lawyer and the president of Death Row Records and you're handling the appeal of Michael Harris and you're going to and you're going to try to sell him down the river. It's just crazy what happens. But I mean, it's amazing what happens in the face of epic success. And this was epic success. 
Hundred, they're doing $150 million a year at retail. It's crazy. And in this, little, in this little office, they've got Crips and Bloods in the office. Suge Knight is, you know, um, you know, it's uh, a very, very unconventional, very unconventional company. Is, is, what is the bridge between the two, you think, the strong bridge? Is it, is it Suge Knight? Besides the obvious... Um, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What's the bridge that that guy that that guides you from straight out of Compton to Welcome to Death Row and back and forth? I mean, Suge Knight is a bodyguard who sizes up what happened at Ruthless mm-hmm. and decides to take it for himself and realizes that you know Dre is the goose that laid the golden egg, and it becomes this sort of by me any means necessary way of uh, you know starting a label. He has a mentor of sorts in, in, in Dick Griffey at Solar Studios, you know, who executes a, a couple of publishing deals through, uh, through Sony that get Dre some money, that get Suge some money. Um, the first publishing deal was for, uh, was for, um, or the, uh, um, was for uh, Mario Johnson, Chocolate, from On the Back of Ice Ice Baby. Mm-hmm. I mean, that got, that got Suge, kind of a little bit of money to get going um but he's a you know the the essential guy is is somebody that just you know utilizes people and then when he doesn't need them anymore moves on and he you know <laughs> to 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 say that you don't need dr dre anymore <laughs> that's you know that's a <laughs> That's pretty fucking crazy, right. you know? So I, you did talk about the recurrent theme that you're finding as the story's writing itself about pretty much the, the, the greed that befalls this, 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 you know, this empire that's being built. What are some other themes that you're seeking to you know, expose some symptoms of the downfall of this, uh, this grand you know, spectacle death row that you're... you're well, you know, I think so. People looked at Suge Knight... You know, and and he was perceived as this hero. Is like, wow, man, this is this guy's done it. He did it, and then to have this epic fall, I think you have to examine really what are the what are the chess moves and what are the what are the what's the what are the character issues that that sort of lead to these bad decisions that 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 you make. He had two female artists, uh, Jewel and uh, and uh, Lady of Rage, and they were incredibly talented. And they, he just let them flap in the wind. He could have probably Death Row was so hot they could have they could have shipped probably a million units on either one of them. But he just he had a you know as Simone Green, who was the house photographer, said, yeah, I mean he had he had these issues with women, just you know just had issues with women artists. But the, you know, it's the, it's the, he tried to foster this idea of we're a family, you know, and uh, a lot of the artists remember him, you know, giving advances and giving money and, but it soon it became more than he, you know, it just, he changed completely. Did this you know? so-called family, was it really more of like a patriarchy? Is that what you mean by the issues with women? Yeah, with him as the somewhat benevolent dictator, I right. guess. Um, 
what what was the extent of that? And I'm, it's I'm, very complex. This is a complex thing because it's sort of like carrot and the stick. You know, I'm going to give you this, but uh, um, but I might be beating the shit out of you next week. You know, um, I don't see it go any other way. But what was to what extent did it go? Uh, have you developed? Is there any theories or anything like that that you've started to begin to uncover about the involvement in some of the deaths that he might have had of the artists themselves? I think that's really what's going to come out is people are going to want to see this to see if it's true that he had this person killed or he's responsible for that. Have you uh, start to unravel anything like that at all? Is that just no. fiction that we're all in, in, in? Look, did anybody see murder rap uh, on the Reels channel? Would have a hard time finding fault with that documentary. Mm. So that puts, uh, you know, that puts Shug at the uh, in the biggie mix. But they, uh, you know, they, like I said, had a false sense of security, and so uh, as they're leaving, you know, the the party gets shut down because it's so crowded. The fire marshal shuts the place down, packed. There's tons of people everywhere. Streets are crowded. And uh, as they're leaving in their caravan, um, Huffy pulls out first in a, in a uh, SUV. Biggie's behind him in another SUV. He's sitting in the front passenger seat. And as they're going towards the intersection, away from the museum, there's a uh, SS Impala along the curb that pulls up alongside Biggie's car. A lone driver leans out the window and starts to shoot. And, uh, you know, obviously kills Biggie. Uh, but that was it. And then uh, finally, after um, conducting our investigation, uh, we were able to find a co-conspirator in the murder. She was a female confidant and baby mother to one of Shug's kids. And uh, she confesses about her involvement in the murder. She implicates Shug. She says that she met with Shug um, several times at the county jail where Shug was incarcerated. And Shug gives her the you know basic orders or directions, get a hold of one of my guys, a guy named Poochie, who's a known shooter, and a known, you know, kind of hitman for Shug. He's done stuff for him in the past. Mm -hmm. And uh, says, get a hold of him and, you know, set it up. So you say that Shug Knight was involved with the murder of the notorious B.I.G.? Yeah, he was behind it. He was the primary conspirator. And, of course, the trigger man is, is really the main suspects but of course should set everything in motion but i'm i'm less interested in that mm -hmm. i'm less interested in that i'm more interested in the the betrayal and because people wanted this thing badly you know to succeed and i think the you know the the most important thing that you derive out of it is why it didn't you know that it is an extraordinary situation to be in the you know in the middle of that level of success and why do some people squander that success i think that's a more interesting story really than i mean we'll always speculate on who shot i mean i believe it was orlando anderson that killed tupac i'm almost certain of it what backs uh, that up Oh, um, the theories, you know, the, the theories have come about and then the way it was handled, 
by LAPD and and and, and all this other stuff that I went know. down. I think I I don't think Keefe D is lying in in murder rap. I don't think he's lying. They had him dead to rights. They were going to put him away for twenty six years, and they said, "This is what we want. If you find out you lied once in this in this deposition, we're going to lock. We're going to we're going to send you away forever." So he had, you know, ample incentive to tell the to tell the truth. Well, another irony in Suge's statement is that he's, you know, he's dissing Rick Ross at the time, and he, one of the things he says is, you know, Rick Ross, if you want to be with Puffy, who's the guy who killed Tupac, then go ahead. So Suge talks out of both sides of his mouth, but it's interesting that he alludes to the fact that Puffy hired somebody to kill Tupac, which is what we discovered in the investigation. We have a confessing co-conspirator in that murder also, a guy named Dwayne Keefe D. Davis, who is the uncle of Orlando Anderson. Orlando Anderson, if you recall, is the one that was fighting with Tupac prior to his murder. Right. Okay. Well, he confesses that uh, they did, in fact, do that murder, but it was solicited by Combs. Combs needed to get, uh, I'm sorry, Combs needed to get uh, Suge and Tupac out of the way because of all these brewing animosities and hostilities going on behind their two record labels. That's a little harder to swallow. It really is, unless you understand the background of what was taking place with these guys. You know, Suge Knight was hunting Puffy down. Suge Knight had essentially kidnapped a guy and tortured him, trying to find the whereabouts of Puffy Combs when he comes out to the West Coast, trying to find the family house. And inevitably, Puffy found out that Suge was trying to hunt him down. There had already been several shootings between these crews. And when you start to put all that into perspective, you know, it was almost like Puffy realized that it was me or him. And that is why he hired these crips to act as his quasi-security when he came to Los Angeles. He put these people in that position specifically to protect himself from Suge. Kill or be killed. Exactly. It really was. It was a desperate act, but uh, he didn't feel like he had a choice. So why isn't Diddy in jail? Well, we run into the same problem with the district attorney out in Las Vegas. Are you really going to try to pose a case against a music icon with hundreds of millions of dollars based on the testimony of a gang member? I hear you. He shot up in the middle of a club and, and walked away, so... Yeah. <laughs> With J-Lo. How do you miss J-Lo in a pistol? I'm sorry. I'm just saying. It, it's logical. It squares. You know, the white Cadillac, the whole, you know, the whole shot, whether Puffy was involved, like they say, to the extent. Who knows? But they, you know, the the simple act of retribution and then the stories of Orlando Anderson bragging about it and, you know, for months after that and, you know, the, I mean, it was a white Cadillac. <laughs> they were in the white Cadillac. Yes. I mean, it's just, what do you, you know, was there another white Cadillac, you know, with somebody that had an ax to grind? Uh, Not that you know. <laughs> yeah. And I, look, I think they've, I think they've almost buttoned up, they pretty much buttoned up that story. I'm I'm more interested in the you know why things happen the way they do, you know, yeah. in success and failure, that, which is what people are. That's going to really happen. Are the, but th there's going to be a generation that's looking for those answers to come to a finalization. I think, and uh, as as important as this, the human interest story is in it, there's very factual things that these people are no longer alive. 
So it has become a mystery, it's become a folktale on the development of that. And when you say, welcome to Death Row, we, we're gonna, they're going to expect at least a touch, a breeze of, then this is what happened to Tupac. And now let's move on, continue. That's fun artistically. Uh, but George, speaking, you know, the story is so big. Yes. There's so many pieces of the puzzle. There's so many. And, you know, I ran into this trying to make a 90-minute movie about ruthless records and easy e is that you know there's some stuff you just can't deal with unless you want a four-hour movie mm -hmm. and nobody wants a four-hour movie they you know you might think you do but you really what you want is a super tight you know movie with great characters and great character development that just puts you on a rocket ship ride and just you know leaves you breathless at the end of you know 90 plus minutes that's that's the reality. So you have to cut and paste. You have to right. sit there and look at it. And that's part of the job is what's the thing that's really going to, you know, compel compel the audience. So the other thing is like you are and you say this hardcore hip hop guy, you know, I want I want your ticket, but I also want the I want the the people that you know, the, the parents of the 18-year-old kid that's trying to figure out what this was all about that isn't so steeped in all of this stuff, you know, that is that doesn't come to the movie with a sort of level of expectation that somebody that's really been, you know, examining this for so long and lived it and breathed it for so long. That was the great thing about Compton is that it's... Uh, it, <laughs> It brought in, I mean, you've got in white suburbia in these middle-class bedroom, white bedroom communities in the suburbs, you had packed houses, you know, look, watching this movie. Those people probably didn't know Jay-Z from whomever. You know, they didn't come with that, that sort of background. And for a movie to go wide, you really have to get that you have to get a lot of people that are, I mean, I, I, when we were doing the death row documentary, I just, I want people to watch this that had know nothing about the hip hop movement because this is about America and it's about making it in America. And it's about this transition of underserved, you know, economically disadvantaged blacks looking to take a seat at the economic table. You know, and, and what happens? So if you could compare, like, the rise and fall of this particular, you know, musical hip-hop empire to something else, to another historical moment or a, a similar structure, what would you use or what are you drawing from you have to, to go create to that drama? you you got to go to Shakespeare. So which Shakespearean drama? Um, I, you know, I liken uh, Suge Knight to Iago. Okay. From Othello. Okay. So yeah. envy yeah. and greed. Yeah, yeah. I think at some level, Suge Knight understood that um, he was over in over his head. And I think when you're in over your head, that, that he truly got lucky, but he didn't want to tell anybody that he got lucky. And the, the fact is that he got lucky is when he tried to start the label up when he got back out of prison. You know, it was a confluence of factors. And I think sometimes when you're, when you're over your head, 
but you're trying to act like the, but you're the boss, you know, uh, you can become a prick. You can become a real prick. Yeah. <laughs> so what's your comment on America using this film as the vehicle? You know, at some level, uh, figuratively, you know, you look at death row and all the violence and all that figuratively. I don't think that there's a whole lot difference. I mean, there's a, whether you use your fists or whether you use lawyers or whatever, I think that there's this element of society that succeeds because of a level of ruthlessness and that they, you know, Donald Trump, uh, exhibit a, you know, that it's, it's a, um, Certain people are wired to do whatever is necessary. You, it gets more attention, I think, if you're using your fists or bats and pipes. But, you know, the most people, a lot of the very successful people in business are just every bit as ruthless as the people you see in the, the death row story. So it's, it's, it's a decision that people make. You know, I think sometimes to put the you know, personal success and personal aggregation of capital ahead of, you know, maybe what's, uh, what's right or correct or, you know, uh, appropriate for the situation. When uh, you had the product in your hand for uh, Compton and you finished it, it was complete. Uh, when you went around and uh, you were hoping to have it picked up by a studio, right? I'm, I'm guessing that was the end goal for it. When you initially started writing it? Yeah, we got, I mean, we were several drafts in. Uh-huh. And um, an agent called me and wanted to do the death row story. And I said, no, no, it's too hard right now at this point. I'm working on straight out of Compton. And, he's, and he put us in touch with a company that um, manages a lot of writers. They didn't take me on as a client mm-hmm. because... They wanted to be producers on the film. Mm. <laughs> so um, a company called Circle of Confusion. And so what happened is that it was we, there was a guy there that knew somebody at New Line and sort of whispered down the lane, hey, we're working on this. And the guy said, yeah, keep going, keep going. So we had to, we knew what we had to do to get it to, we were going to send it out on auction, but we also knew that New Line wouldn't touch it unless we had Tamika, you know, some sort of agreement between my company, Xenon, and, and Tamika for the, you know, to put the rights. That didn't mean that she sold us the rights. It meant that she endorsed the script and it was incumbent upon the studio to uh, work out a separate deal with her. And she drove a pretty hard bargain, apparently. Um, so that was really the process. It was someone at, uh, circle of confusion that, uh, you know, that got it to, you know, that whispered to somebody. But so when it went out on auction, they waited at the end of the day and new line came in with an offer at the very end of the day, keep it, take it or leave it. But it had only been out 24 hours. So you it, you, it wasn't a huge struggle to reach its end point. Well, it was a huge story. I mean, it took four years. Right. It took four years to get to that point. But what we just had intel that if we were able to get all these pieces together, um, there might be something there. 
but they didn't make a commitment before it went out on auction. They just, they did at the end of the day. Are you, you think you're going to face the same challenges with uh, Welcome to Death Row? Yeah, it's going to be brutal. Yeah. I mean, anytime you're talking about a story that involves music and, you know, you have people with agendas and, you know, that want to do it their way and might not want to do it the way I want to do it. Um, yeah, you're going to, it will be, a, um, it'll be a struggle. And these are some of the compromises that were made in the end result, which was straight out of Compton, I'm assuming. Some of the things that you were dissatisfied with as oh, a result I wasn't of others' agendas. I wouldn't say dissatisfied with. I mean, I'm a big boy, so I expect that it's okay. Um, it's 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 going to be Dre and Cube show. I right. spoke to Heller. They don't like Heller. Put two and two together. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not. And I didn't take offense to it because this happens all the time. I, even if that wasn't the issue. Producers pick the people that they want to work with and the writers they want to work with after, you know, so you don't, you don't sweat that. Have you, you thought onto your next project after this or are you solely concentrated? Oh, I've got a, you know, I'm, I'm. Can I suggest I've the Wu-Tang story? I've written a remake of Dolomite. I've I written a remake of Dolomite. So really? I've, I have that and I've, I've written a, uh, a, uh, immigration comedy with, uh, Donald Trump jokes. Wow. So, uh. <laughs> That's uh, easy. To, that sounds so easy I, to write. You know. Yeah. Uh, I have a few things. That I I've think Wu Tang would be a super interesting story to see mm -hmm. develop. Uh, right? Yeah. Be Beastie Boys or something like that. I yeah. mean, if you want to continue down that path, but uh, you might. Yeah. Wanna... You know, the thing is, it's the story. It's really the story and the human relationships. Yeah. It's got to be apart from just the notoriety of the group itself. Mm -hmm. There has to be something there that is just. Wow. There's got to be something epic. Wow. Well, I mean, think about the origins of just the Wu-Tang and what they've been able to accomplish on that side of the continent. I mean, that right there in itself is very interesting to me. Again, but I'm, I'm looking at it from uh, I'm in love with this, with the content already. We're pitching you stuff. You're and we mine. have no we have producer mine. credits. That's why. I am. Um... I'll tell you, I'm not, you know, I'm... The Wake the Flock Up story would be fantastic, by the way. <laughs> you know, here's this chubby kid, and he's able to... Uh, no. No, it's... it's think about it's, it. I, my real interest in hip-hop-related stuff was Ruthless mm -hmm. and Death Row. You know, that's, those were the... Those stories were really interesting to me. Um a writer, I mean, as a writer, I like to deal with different kinds of subjects, so I don't want to necessarily just stay right. in the, the, you know, the, the hip-hop area. But the, uh, um, you know, I like the idea of Dolomite as a black superhero. So I'm, you know, I'm working on that, you know, yeah. developing that. <laughs> and just taking, taking that iconic 70s character and putting him in, 2016 with apps and iPhones well, and uh, you know trying to and and have him be a better hustler than anybody you know as even though he's old school the dress wear oh you just costume wise you just want to see it happen that's pretty much okay I mean you're gonna he's gonna have a lot of the attitude I mean yeah. if you look at be like if you look at Dolomite Dolomite has this sort of moral core to him he's anti drug you know. He's certainly pro-sex. Right. 
Um, Free love. But but he's uh, but but he's uh, he's also you know loyal, and if you take something from him, he's going to get it. He's going to get it back, and he's not going to be beholden to the man. So he has a you know yeah. he has a um, he has a certain you know anti, you know appeal, real appeal. Jim Kelly. That's all right. No, uh, he's Terry Crews. <laughs> I, I'm excited right. about your reimagining of a black black exploitation film into something more modern and more serving to the community that we have now. I think that would be a good idea. Um, but going back to the death row, um, I was just wondering what your ex what kind of findings you're excited to divulge with the movie. What new information you've discovered that you are super stoked to share with the world through you know i i appreciate the question i do yeah <laughs> but it's it's <laughs> it's it's uh the story either works or it doesn't you know and it's it's um it's there's enough there and they'll go i'll go outside the you know the book but there won't be any sort of radical uh, for somebody that's really super close to the story, um, I think it's going to be new to most people. It's going to be new and fresh and interesting to most people because they they don't uh, they don't really know what happened. So you think you we've know? we've had we have misconceptions of how things actually went down? No, I I you know I think it's. I think I have a pretty good understanding of what went down. As the you public, know? I mean, I'm referencing the public. No, I don't think the public is is really onto this story yet. Okay, that's the thing. Uh -huh. You know, I think some people are from years ago. People like yourself, you know, followed it, but you know, there's this whole audience of kids, thirteen to you know, up to twenty one, that just, I mean, they just straight out of Compton just woke them up mm -hmm. like they're hungry for yeah. this period in history it's like I remember when you know I got out of high school and you know I'm thinking about shit from the 60s and uh, how curious I was suddenly about Jim Morrison and Pink Floyd and the who and all that and you know we're this is what's happening now Suge Knight Oh my God! But in, and you're right. Most people know Drave because of Beats. I mean, he hadn't produced an album in what ten years or something mm -hmm, before this most recent one. You know, he was mainly a mentor and a you know a guy that pulled in Eminem uh, uh, and I guess had Fifty Cent and others. So we are coming to the end of the show. I want to thank you for coming out. And really talking to us. I think uh, the stories that are developing and uh, explaining them through the eyes, I think of so someone who's solely looking at it as a human uh, interest story, I think is what you're doing. And really want to expose, not, yes, I, I, I understand um, we wanting the facts and like you got to tell us, but the storytelling behind it and, and the way you're, you're putting it together, it's becoming the, this artistic thing now. 
instead of just simple simple documentary style, which very much of the time it's it's done artistically, but the way you're putting it together, it's a uh, interesting for me and it's interesting for my 14 year old cousin or brother. And I got to commend you for doing that for such an important topic to many people in my generation and everyone in this room. You know, so I want to thank you for that. Uh, I think there's a lot of stuff that needs to be said. And if someone's going to approach it in a noblest way with that, a real goal in mind and just kind of let the story develop. Um, I think that's always important to pay attention to those people that do that. I wish you the best. Thank, thank you, you for, uh, I Thanks, cannot George. wait to see, to see it develop in uh when can we expect it? Do you have any idea at all? Oh no, I'm I'm raising development money right now, you know, to to attach talent and you know, do the various iterations of the script and and uh, you know I have a 21 page very detailed single spaced treatment that shows you how the movie unfolds at least at this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, can I see it? I have a pretty good idea. Do you have it? With Not you? yet, guy. No? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That'll go viral. Okay. Well, I'm just saying. I want an exclusive. Yeah. That's all. Uh, thank you again for coming sure. out. Thanks for having me. I I'm, uh, I was really excited to have you, uh, and I think we we succeeded. You answered everything. You asked a lot of questions that I was going to ask you before I asked them. Uh, I don't know. You're looking at me kind of weird. Did you have something you, you want to bring up? <laughs> okay. I'm going to ask you. I just thought it wasn't appropriate to the content of the story, and t- you might not even have uncovered that but uh <laughs> someone asked me to ask you he right there asked me one minute to ask you do you think easy e contracted the aids to play people contracted aids or was it slip a hand and forced upon him let me say this um <laughs> shit <laughs> Ooh, wow. get your phones out <laughs> no no very do you think he was shot up with AIDS or do you think he... I don't think there's a conspiracy. You don't? No, I don't. Clean answer. Okay, there you go. Is that is that good, Dips? You're good? You're happy? All right. <laughs> Lee Savage, everybody. When something happens in South Central Los Angeles, nothing happens. It's just another nigga dead, 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 dead. Straight out of Compton, crazy motherfucker named Ice Cube.